is not listening. Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Internet Radio. We're going to do something a little different tonight. I have a few topics that I want to talk about at length, and, and then I'm going to have some discussion. I'm going to take calls. I have one caller planned, and, and that's set up ahead of time. He will be first. There's a few other things that I, um, I, I want to talk about first. We're um, going to take calls as long as I can see Melissa's screen. It's going to be at least 45 minutes before I take any calls. I'm not going to take calls from people that we don't recognize. I will, um, or Melissa will tell the people in the chat how to, um, how, to, how to get to me. And we're going to leave it at that for this evening. And hopefully some of them will call in. This is Friday, September 11th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are at our, um, our northern retreat, I guess. We're in Philadelphia, or several miles outside of Philadelphia, in eastern Pennsylvania. I want to talk about, first, uh, I don't get the chance to do, I don't take the chance, let me put it that way, to do this too often. And, and um, open lines programs, the, the participation is usually pretty dismal, even though they get lots of downloads. And I don't want to deal with the trolls. We don't talk to Jews at Christogenia. If, um, if the trolls were Christians, they wouldn't harass us week in and week out. They prove, although they claim some of them to be Christians, they prove that they are certainly no Christians at all. And we um, have strong reason to suspect that some of these clowns playing a Christian identity, of course, aren't even white, don't even belong anywhere near Christian identity. So we believe that they do this simply because that they have a mission or perhaps a paid commission to harass us because they do it um, ceaseless, ceaselessly week in and week out. Not only here at TalkShoe, they troll us on Facebook, they post fake accounts. They troll us on archive.org. They troll us on WordPress blogs. That's okay because um, a lot of our readers and listeners have found us because of the trolls, because they wanted to see what we were really about, seeing that we were endlessly trolled and endlessly slandered by certain people with filthy mouths and that's not all that's that that's not their only problem. Let's leave it at that. I want to talk about a few topics tonight. The first one is um salvation in Acts chapter sixteen verse thirty one. And and this was a question on the Christogenia Forum. I have several topics of conversation here tonight from the Christogenia Forum that I thought I should share with a, a wider audience. One of the um, newer members of the forum, 
who's only been learning Christian identity for perhaps a few months to a year, had said that I am well on board with the concept of covenant salvation as opposed to personal salvation. But I am a bit puzzled on Acts chapter 16, verse 31, where it says, Masters, this is um, where Paul was released from, from, um, from the jail by an earthquake. And, and it really scared the warden of the jail. And he said, Masters, what is necessary for me to do that I be saved? And they said, Believe in the prince, Yahshua, and you and your house shall be saved. Let me say this, that that um, jailer was a pagan. He had no concept of salvation the way that the Judeo-Christians imagined salvation. He had no concept for that, no, um, no background that, would, that we know of that would let him understand that. And our Christoginia Forum member goes on to say that from what I take of this verse, it seems to indicate that the jailer is asking what he needs to do to be saved. And then, of course, the apostles go along with this question and without any correction say he needs to, be, to believe. To me, this verse indicates a type of personal decision in order to obtain salvation. And then he says, I definitely took a good look at the Christiania commentary, but on this occasion my query was not answered. So I am just wondering what the explanation is to this verse and how racial covenant salvation is compatible to this verse and not personal salvation, despite it indicating the latter. In other words, the verse indicates that um, the apostles were teaching personal salvation. And, And when I saw this post... And, and I don't mind questions like this. I need questions like this. I really do. And, and when I saw this post, I took a look at my commentary on Acts chapter 16. And indeed, this chapter of Acts, that this aspect of Acts chapter 16 was not treated. The gentleman is correct. And, you know, when I, when, when I prepare my commentaries on Scripture, I really do, and, and it usually takes me about two days to prepare for a Bible commentary, which I present on Friday night, and I start on Wednesday afternoon, typically. And I really do try to think of every aspect of every verse. But I can also miss a lot because I'm human, and I could miss a lot because I do not have a real substantial Judeo-Christian background. So I don't know what the, a lot of what the Judeo-Christians use and abuse in order to teach the, the universalism that they teach and, and the crazy things concerning personal salvation that they claim of certain scriptures. So one's Weltanschauung, one's own worldview, definitely affects 
one's perspective when presenting a commentary because it is unavoidable that at least at some times some things are going to be taken for granted that everybody knows them. You're going to take some things for granted that, oh, everybody knows that, and, and I don't have to go there. And, and in fact, because my, 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 most of my audience is Christian identity already, and that's who I'm aiming most of my commentary for, is a, an audience that understands at least basic Christian identity. So it's unavoidable to take for granted the fact that everybody knows something when in fact it's no fact and everybody doesn't know it and it may be necessary to treat that topic in depth but because I take it for granted I assume other people are going to know this and and that's one problem what with um presenting um any bible commentary I I don't know how you could write a commentary which can possibly treat every aspect of every verse. I mean, you think it took me seven, seven Friday nights to cover Galatians. If, if I really had the, the mind of God that, that I could treat every aspect of every verse, I might be doing Galatians for the next five years. So with, with every... Friday night presentation, I really struggle to to present what I believe what I believe needs to be presented and to focus on what needs to be said as opposed to what can be said. And sometimes I'll throw in things that can be said, such as um, backgrounds on Bible terms or things that I might even leave out. So it, it's it's hard to, um, to to present what we need to present as identity Christians in order to demonstrate that our viewpoint of Scripture is the only valid viewpoint, as opposed to what you can possibly say about every verse, and, and perhaps take so long to cover a chapter that people just stop listening after 25 weeks or something. I'm kidding, but it, it's true. I mean, you, you can only go into so much depth and, and still keep, try to keep it interesting and, and um, pertinent. We don't need too many details. So it's, well, I'm going to skip over things. We're going to gloss over things that we take for granted that everybody knows. But let's talk about this, um, this verse in Acts in a little more depth. And, and I did actually go back and amend my notes to that chapter. Of course, I can't amend the podcast without a lot of labor, and I wouldn't do that. But I did amend the notes and, and make a note of that, and I'll probably amend them even further in the, in the future. The, um, getting questions like this is actually helpful but because it, it allows me to fill in a lot of blanks when, when I can't foresee every question. While Paul and Silas were in Philippi, They were arrested. And as the account goes in Acts chapter 16, 
And I'm not going to go into the details of their arrest. They're really not pertinent here, but we'll go into um, their time in a jail. And, and from verse 26, it says, and this is sometime in late at night, in the middle of the night. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we all are here. And then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, ostensibly, this man had not heard the gospel of Christ. He, being a pagan Roman or a pagan Greek, or even a pagan Macedonian, and, and Macedonians are um, basically Greeks. We could call them Greeks. The um, concept of salvation from a Judeo-Christian standpoint, this man knew nothing about because it doesn't exist in the pagan world, that concept. He knew nothing about salvation of the spirit and eternal life in heaven, the way a Judeo-Christian of today conceives it. So where it says saved, it really means preserved, preserved in this life. This man just um, was just about to take his life because that is in ancient Rome, and that's evident elsewhere in Scripture, that is the penalty for a soldier who loses his prisoners, even if sometimes the, the, the circumstances were out of his control. I mean, he couldn't help an earthquake, but he was afraid he would suffer the penalty of execution, so he was about to take his own life. And Paul told him not to do that, so he wants to know what must I do to be preserved, understanding that Paul had a, a greater knowledge and, and some greater force with him because Paul and Silas could have just left, and they didn't. The prisoners could have just fled. Paul assured the keeper of the jail that all the prisoners were still there and wouldn't leave which is amazing in itself. So this man must have recognized that Paul indeed had some authority or knowledge from a higher plane. And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. 
and that could say, and thou shalt be preserved in thy house. And they spoke unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, because they were whipped, and was baptized, he and all his, straight away. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat or food before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Now, a few forum members made um, good responses to this inquiry. I, I can't go into them all. One of them raised the valid point that if it was the modern concept of personal salvation, which was being taught here by the apostles, that Paul should not have initially responded to the jailer with the words, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house, meaning all of the people of his household, since neither Paul nor the jailer could have determined in advance just what the people of the jailer's house may have believed after hearing the gospel. What if they rejected it? What if one of them rejected it? Then that would make Paul a liar. Why would Paul say something about what somebody might believe whom he hadn't met? Paul met others, other men before that heard the gospel and rejected it, plenty of them. So how could Paul know in advance that everybody in this guy's house were going to accept the gospel and be saved when Paul only told the gentleman that he had to believe and that he would be saved and his whole house? That's not personal salvation according to way, the way the Judeo-Christians teach it that only the jailer has to believe and his whole house would be saved. What the Judeo-Christians of today do not realize is that to the jailer's household, it would not really matter what they believed. What their personal belief was wouldn't matter. What matters is whether they would continue in their pagan ways, or whether they would live by the laws of God. If one loves Jesus, if one believes God, one must keep his commandments. If you profess to believe God and you don't keep his commandments, you are a liar. You do not believe God. In the ancient world, as it should be in the modern world, the patriarch was the head of the household. And he, in ancient Greece, in ancient Rome, he regulated the lives of all of the members of the household. Yes, he did. That is the patriarchal society, which the Jews and all those who have sided with them in this modern age have destroyed. The patriarchal Aryan traditions that we had kept for thousands of years were actually traditions which are commanded of us by our God. 
if we despise the patriarchal society, we are actually doing the work of the enemies of God. It was the objective of the Communist Manifesto and the Protocols of Zion. It was the objective of the international Jew, the Jews of the Frankfurt School, to destroy the patriarchal society in order to undermine Christianity and the West, all of the white nations. And anyone who agrees with the destruction of the patriarchal structure is actually on the side of the Jews. And Judeo-Christians aren't even taught that. If the head of the household agreed in Christ, then the head of the household would have to bring his whole house into the obedience in Christ, would have to abandon the licentiousness, the profligacy, and the hedonism of Roman paganism, the idolatry, and keep the commandments of Christ. So as Christ himself had said, mother would be divided against daughter-in-law and father against son-in-law. But the house and those remaining therein would be compelled to comply with the patriarch. The apostles consistently saw the imminent return of Christ and awaited the punishment of the ungodly that goes along with that return. They had that worldview, a totally different worldview than the jailer who only wants to be preserved because he had seen a great omen. All of his jail cells were opened and the prisoners didn't escape. And he's like, what's going on here? The apostles consistently saw the imminent return of Christ and awaited the punishment of the ungodly. That was their worldview. They had that worldview because that was the way Christ had wanted them to think and act. As he himself said in the gospel, watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord does come. And the jailer and his family would be susceptible to the pagan practices and immorality of the time as well as the judgment of God that the apostles perceived was about to come upon the world because of those practices. The world of the apostles consisting of both wheat and tares without the question of race, which we now have. Rejecting Christ, you do not need to worry about morality if you're a tear. Accepting Christ, you would accept the gospel and keep the commandments, separating yourselves from the immoral, from the pagans, and from their practices. An example of that is in Romans chapter 1. And therefore, at the return of Christ, you would not suffer the judgment which is impending upon the ungodly. And we're still promised that judgment. It's going to come. If you look at Revelation chapter 18 and the prophetic depiction of the fall of Babylon, 
Come out of her, my people, lest you suffer her sins. Lest you suffer her punishments. I'm sorry. So the people that have kept themselves joined to the beasts and, and, and to this Babylonian system, they will suffer. So the apostles being taught and believing that that could happen at any moment told this man that he would be preserved, meaning that he would be preserved from the judgment of God if he turned to Christ. And his turning to Christ turns his entire household to the law of God. And his entire household, keeping the law of God, would be separated from the immoral pagan world. That's the paradigm. That's the worldview of the apostles. That's the worldview of the jailer. And that's the paradigm under which Acts chapter 16 must be properly understood. It's, um, it, it's incredible that the Judeo-Christians of today would think that a pagan jailer 2,000 years ago would mean the same thing that they believe that these words mean and put their understanding onto this ancient pagan jailer, that that's just crazy. That that doesn't make any sense at all. But that is the shallow Weltanschauung of the Judeo-Christian churches. I want to answer for um, somebody in Michigan, a friend of Michigan, why did John the Baptist, he dropped me this in a note a couple of weeks ago, why did John the Baptist say anything to Herod about the marriage law if Herod was a tear? Um, Herod Agrippa, Herod Agrippa I, had actually had for a wife the wife of his brother Philip, and, of course, that's um, it, it's contrary to the law of God to take a wife, take for a wife, your brother's wife. It, it's specifically against the law, explicitly against or contrary to God's law. This question and similar questions are often raised, and, and when I say similar questions... I, I might make myself clear in the explanation. What we must understand is that throughout Scripture, Yahweh challenged, he judged not only his people by the law, but he challenged his enemies on the basis of his law. This is um, first evident in Genesis chapter 4 where Cain's sacrifice was rejected. Many commentators make varying excuses for why Cain's sacrifice was rejected, but it is evident in Scripture that there was only one possible reason. Because Cain was born a devil, and by no means could he inherit the family priesthood. 
But Abel was qualified. He was the son of Adam. And his sacrifice was accepted. Thereafter, we read in Genesis chapter 4 from verse 6, after Cain's sacrifice was rejected, and Yahweh said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And ostensibly, that sin lies at the door is the reason why Cain could not do well, because he was a bastard. But Cain is nevertheless challenged to do good, where Yahweh had told him that if thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted. That doesn't mean he's going to heaven. Yet upon being challenged, Cain immediately failed. And we read that Cain, in the very next verse, Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. So we read this, where Christ had testified of John the Baptist from Luke chapter 7. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people that heard him, and the publicans justified God, being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized by him. And from this we learn, and the point of this is that when the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers had gone out to see John the Baptist, as it is recorded in both Matthew chapter 3 and Luke chapter 3, they did not go out to be baptized by him, but they only went out to see why he was baptizing. And later, it is evident from their disputations with Christ that they were challenging his right to be baptizing. Then, when we see, when we go back to the beginning, because this isn't explained right away, it's not explained here until here in Luke 7 that the Pharisees and the lawyers did not go out to be baptized by him. When we see those accounts of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 and in Luke chapter 3, it is evident that upon his seeing those scribes and Pharisees who came out to see why he had been baptizing, while John knew them to be evil, and his words elucidate that knowledge, he nevertheless had challenged them to do good. I'll read from Matthew chapter 3, from verse 5. Then went out to him Jerusalem 
and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan. And they were baptized by him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw that many of the Pharisees and Sadducees came to his baptism, not necessarily to be baptized, as we learn in Luke chapter 7, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring therefore, bring forth fruits worthy for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham for a father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also, the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Indeed, I baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire whose span is in his hand. And this is a premonition of the separation of the wheat and the tares. Whose span is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor. He will gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, the Judeo-Christians also abuse this passage, imagining that just because God could raise up children to Abraham from stones, that would also make them heirs of the covenant. Paul explains at great length in Galatians chapter 3 that the promises to Abraham are carried down through Jacob, Israel. Because the covenants and promises to Abraham are exclusive of all of Abraham's children to the children of Jacob, Israel, as Paul explains, the true children of Israel, I'm sorry, the true children of Abraham are expected to do the works of Abraham. And even children raised from stones would not be children of the covenant because the covenant is only made to the descendants of Abraham through Jacob. The bastards are expected to do evil. Paul called the children of Esau vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. The bastards are expected to do evil although they are challenged to do good. This lesson that we get from Scripture is for us who should learn from it that a bastard cannot possibly do good even when they are challenged to do good. So John says, O oh, generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The bastard, even when he appears to do good, eventually the serpent shall, shall, the serpent shall strike because that is its nature. John tells us 
in the later verses that it is the role of Christ to separate the wheat from the chaff because Christ is greater than John. The chaff can only be the tares of the parable of the wheat and the tares. And the axe is already laid to the root of the trees because those which were bastards and those which are true-born are already known by God. But John nevertheless challenged the wicked to do good. Likewise, Paul of Tarsus must have known that Herod Agrippa II was an Edomite. That the first Herod was an Edomite was knowledge common to Flavius Josephus, who wrote only a few years after Paul. Josephus was actually a friend and in-law of Herod Agrippa II, the same Agrippa of the account of Acts chapter 26. In the account of Paul speaking before Agrippa, in that chapter. Paul challenges Herod to be a Christian, and Herod shows his true nature by evading the question entirely. After giving the account of the crucifixion, the passion of Christ, Paul says to Agrippa, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Paul's challenging him. That's a rhetorical challenge. Herod, the king, claiming to be a Judean, as all the Edomites had adopted Judaism for their own, could not publicly deny the prophets. So if Herod acknowledged Paul's question, Paul would gain a great victory over those who were persecuting him. But, like a snake, Agrippa slithered out of the question. And we read, Then Agrippa said to Paul, Almost you persuade me to be a Christian. Almost the bastard can't be a Christian. But Paul, speaking for the benefit of the large crowd that was in attendance, said, I wish to God that not only you, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these bonds, because Paul was under arrest. He was in chains. Paul challenged Herod Agrippa II to do good, and Herod could not do good. He could not acknowledge the prophets of God. He slithered right out of that question, just like a typical Jew lawyer. Although it is evident from the gospel accounts that Christ himself had often challenged the wicked to do good, there is one more notable example which I will offer here, and that is from Revelation chapter 2. It cannot be proven historically that Jezebel was a Canaanite. It is a strong possibility that she was a Canaanite. Her father, Esbal, was a Baal priest on Tyre, 
who slew a descendant of the beloved King Hiram and usurped the throne of Tyre and Sidon for himself. Jezebel, his daughter, was indeed a wicked woman, and the whole house of Ahab was cut off as punishment for what things Ahab had done under her influence. Yet even of the wicked Jezebel, the word of Christ says in Revelation chapter 2, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the reins and hearts, and will give unto every one of you according to your works. So we see here again, that the wicked are challenged to do good according to the law of Yahweh. When they fail, it is a lesson to us not to bastardize the creation of Yahweh. And that is the process which has led us to where we are today. If we know that bastards, even when they're challenged to keep the law of God, cannot keep it, they are bound to sin. They are certainly destined to sin and corruption, no matter how good they appear in public. How would we want to create more bastards? If the Bible is properly taught, we would have a lot less bastards pretending to be of us. I have um, one caller that I'm going to try to get on the line, if I could find my mouse, since my mouse is frozen, right? Yes, my mouse is frozen. That's okay. I have a backup. Wow. I hate Windows. I love my Linux computers. Okay, that should take a second. In a straight on month. Hello, Seth. Hello. Hello. Okay, I might have a um, I might have a technical problem. That's quite possible. This is supposed to work, but it's obviously not. I cannot hear my computer. And I don't know why. hello. 
Hello, can you hear me? Okay, that's better. I don't know what happened the first time. No. I don't know if it's on this end or yours, that's why I ask. I can hear you fine. Are you able to hear me? Yes. Okay, good. I couldn't hear you the first time you called. That's why I'm asking. Uh, I'm not sure why that happened, but okay, it seems to be working now. I don't, well, well, this whole setup is new to me, so I don't. I, I know what to expect. I mean, I had tested it with my wife back in back in Panama City before we left um, when I first set it up. But that doesn't mean it's it's Windows, right? I mean, anything could go wrong. It's Microsoft products, Skype, Windows. Wow. Thanks for calling. Well, thank you for having me. Um, so in the spirit of the recent program series on Galatians and uh, the recent dealings with my mother-in-law, I wanted to just have a little discussion on proselytizing. Uh, it kind of ties in with what the program has been about tonight. Um, but I was speaking with NATO about this earlier when I was telling him about the uh, the open lines for tonight, and I was talking mainly about like the the challenges that are unique to identity Christians in the modern era. Um, we've got either rabid atheists, apathetic agnostics, or uh, sorrow prominent most certainly familiar with uh, Judeo-Churchians and all their assorted denominational baggage. I mean, not all of us have contact with Judeo-Churchians, but a lot of us do still. And um, I, I think there needs to be some sort of discussion or uh, a plan of action for dealing with these people. Uh, because we, we are required to uh, preach the message of Christ and try and get the people that are supposed to hear the law, the, the ones that have the law written on their hearts to uh, listen and turn from the worldly secular ways so that they are not devoured by beasts, so that they are, as the jailer wanted to know, preserved. They, they need to be preserved just as he needed that preservation and turning their hearts and minds to our Father will secure that. So what really got me thinking about that was a forum post that just popped into my head with regard to, um, I believe it was some family function that you were attending and you were talking to people about, I think it was Genesis. I looked for the post, but I couldn't find it. There's a post, I think, about Genesis. And I don't know if it was your sister-in-law's husband or someone. After about 30 minutes, uh, he said something along the lines of, so you don't believe the Jews are God's chosen people? <laughs> and you were incredulous at that. Right. That, that was my... My second cousin on, on my father's side, my second cousin's husband, that they're um, they're Lutherans that they were raised Lutherans and turned Baptist. My, my um, great grandparents went to a Lutheran church, 
when they went to upstate New York. And, and um, they were raised Lutherans and turned Baptist, and she married a Baptist. And um, I had a long conversation with him and two She's my second cousin. Her children, I would consider third cousins, right? They're really first cousins twice removed. The, um, and it is two different sets of standards for cousin nomenclature, right? The, the, um, her two son-in-laws, so none of these are my blood. I had one female cousin there that was my real second cousin. And, and three men listening to me, and they had accosted me that they're all staunch Baptists, and they know that uh, I'm, a, uh, I'm a hater and, and um, a racist, and, a, and, and I don't worship Jews. They accosted me at a family dinner, one of the few that I was invited to, and I gave them probably 45 minutes of Bible and history. Um, I, I made it as irreproachable as I could and explained to them why Jesus was not a Jew, why today's Jews are not Judeans. And, and I explained the entire history. I quoted Josephus. I quoted Romans chapter 9. I quoted John chapter 8, Luke chapter 11, Revelation 2, 9, 3, 9, all of the um, passages that should be um, memorized and, and ordered by every identity Christian so that they could answer why the Jews are not Israel. I talked about Ezekiel chapter 34 and 35, the whole thing. I talked for 30, for 30 to 45 minutes, and after that entire talk, my second cousin's husband, who's only a couple of years younger than me, he's a grown man, he's probably 48 years old at the time, just looked at me and he said, so you don't believe that the Jews are God's chosen people? And, and I looked at him like, wow, I just want to hit him now. Yeah, you know, what kind of questions? I just spent 45 minutes explaining this to this man. He can't talk to me about anything that I quoted. He can't talk on a level of history and scripture. He can only talk to me because he heard from his Baptist pastors for 48 years that the Jews are God's chosen people, and he believes it without checking into it for himself. And that's, you know, I spent um, many years in prison where I had a captive audience with my fellow white prisoners. And um, they couldn't get away from me unless I wanted to let them go. That's just the prison circumstance. It's always and, helpful. And I realized a long time ago that you cannot turn somebody to this message unless there's a switch hit in their minds that only God could hit. And that switch says racial awakening on it. If a person has some semblance that the other races are different than ours, then you should be able to reach them with this message. If they do not have that awakening, that switch already hit, there's nothing you could do. You could know all history, 
and all scripture. You could show them Christ arguing with the Jews on YouTube, and they wouldn't get it. And that's why. That, that's from my personal experience. That's why I can't come up with a one-size-fits-all formula for introducing somebody to Christian identity. Because everybody has um, that their own Weltanschauung, which is based on whatever schooling and whatever church they had gone to, if indeed they even went to a church. I have more luck with, with, with um, racially conscious atheists and pagans than I had with non-racially conscious Christians. I agree with that. Uh, sorry that you mentioned the uh, racially aware switch. Nathan and I were discussing that and our own journey to that point, and Nathan described it as a push that was needed. Everyone gets to a point where all he needs is a push, and then he understands it, provided the law is written on his heart. I mean, when I was at that point and I heard of Christian identity, I knew it in my heart to be true immediately. And I certainly wasn't well-versed in it right away. I've been studying for about six years now, and I still don't feel like I have mastery of it, and I'm sure I never will feel that way. But uh, once that, that push occurs... You're, you feel a lot better grounded in it. And I also agree with the, uh, the notion that there is no one-size-fits-all attack plan or strategy for speaking to people about it. Uh, but I do think that knowing the person to some extent uh, for... Um, appealing to whatever common ground may exist, such as someone with history. Um, that would be a, a good angle for discussion. If you can find some sort of angle to engage them with the the CI message, I think that goes a long way toward that. Uh, for, for example, uh, this past weekend, my mother-in-law was visiting, and uh, the night before she left, now, it was Sunday, and uh, I, had, I had told her that she had missed her apostate church meeting, and she was immediately defensive, and she said, oh, it's not apostate, it's not apostate, and I just hammered away on that, because I always do that with her. I always point out that it's an apostate church and that she shouldn't be attending. I have some tojo preacher with a white wife. It's ridiculous. I'm not going to get into it, but... Either way, I wanted to plant that, that seed of doubt in her head regarding her church once more. And the next morning, um, I had her listen to, and she agreed to it. She had never listened. Wait, I think she listened to one sermon before of uh, Mark Downey's, but regardless, I had her listen to uh, your presentation of Clifton's two papers, the 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 secret hidden for 2,700 years and the unseen world within our world, I believe are the titles. Either way, she was really receptive of that. 
I, I gave her a pen and paper. I wanted her to take notes on it. And uh, she's one of those people that will read 12 pages a day. She's, she's adamant that she reads 12 pages a day, and that's not going to do anything for her because she's not honestly searching the scriptures for what she needs to see. She just wants to read her 12 and be done with it. But I had her take notes, and I engaged her in a bit of discussion afterward, and I was able to answer her questions really well. And I think that the the program that you had on those two papers was the ground I needed to engage her upon. She has those very same questions all the time. She's been, I've known her for eight years now, and she has always had those questions. And I think that was a very good introductory program for her to listen to with regard to the identity Christianity message. So I think if we can identify that sort of common ground or the area in which someone is actively seeking for information, we can go forth from there and maybe we can get to that switch. What What's your experience in that regard? Well, well that, that's a... Um, that That's... Another reason why there's no single pill, right? Uh, I wish I could just make a pill and, and pass it out. Everybody get everybody to take it, and whoever wanted to take it would get it, right? That there's no single pill because, like you just said, everybody who is searching for answers, because a lot of people think they have all the answers. That that's a big problem with the established Judeo churches. The established Judeo Christian churches give people a false sense of accomplishment when those people can repeat back the mantras that their that their own pastors use every Sunday sermon. The the punchlines, the mantras. So that gives them a false sense of accomplishment. And, and once they have that sense of accomplishment, that they are advanced in their Christian understanding, and, and they get baptized 18 times a year. And, and once they have that sense of accomplishment, they can no longer learn everything. They think that they're there. They think that they know it all. So only a small percentage of people are actually searching for answers. And how do you find them uh, in in a church of five hundred or a thousand people? How do you find them in a neighborhood of two or three hundred people? It, it's or in a workplace of a hundred people. You don't want to um, it, if you harass people that are not looking for answers. You're going to alienate them. So that doesn't do any good. If you get the people that are looking for answers, then you have to find that there's um, some sort of, of, like you're doing with your mother-in-law, it's a noble cause, but you have to find what's going to work with her and and get her to think about things so that um, if the switch is hit, because I believe that only God could hit that switch, if she does have some um, semblance of of racial awakening in her, she will get it. But it's a difficult 
process, and it's different for every individual. I wish I could write one paper and, and bring people to see. I, I, I would only have to write one paper. I might get here on Friday night and repeat the same paper every Friday. Right? That would be wonderful. It, it would be. If only. <laughs> but but it's... It, it's um, uh, I've thought about it from a from hundred different angles. Clifton Emheiser, you, you know, we've done it before. I got five or six papers on who the Jews are. Clifton has five or six papers on who the Jews are. And, and he was just compelled to do it again. And last month he did another paper on who the Jews are. Because it, it's, that there's no one way to explain it that fits everybody, that everybody is going to get. So, so you try to think of different ways to teach the same thing, hoping to reach different people. Right. Certain, certain scriptures might resonate within someone's mind better than other scriptures. And being that we have so many witnesses in scripture, that is certainly a boon for our efforts. But I, I can understand entirely what Clifton is doing if he's continuing to write those papers. And it's definitely something to be commended and appreciated. The um, Abraham's Covenant, Iran and Cat. That that's a great little book. It it has a mistake. Is that the little blue book? It's the little blue book. It has right, a mistake or two in it. It does. But I don't want to rewrite it, right? I mean, I could fix the mistake or two. Yes, I can. But I don't want to rewrite that book that that book has been so effective and, and it was very effective for me in introducing people to christian identity but it was only effective with people who were already willing who already understood a little bit about what i was saying and were already willing to listen to more so it wasn't effective with people that I hit with it cold, right? That they didn't understand the, the racial differences. And I, I tried that a few times to give them that book, and they brought it back and said, this is nuts, or this ain't right, or whatever, simply because it went against what their pastor said, even though it was biblically a very sound little book. But they don't care about the Bible. They care about what their pastor says. But with people that were already willing to listen, the book was very effective. So I don't want to try to improve on it. it, it's, um, it it's not something I should do. E. Raymond Cap did a good job, and I would stay with him. That, that's one example of, of a beginner treatise that even though it might have a flaw or two, it is effective and good, but it's only effective in certain situations. It's only effective with people that are searching and willing to listen. So that 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 searching, you, you can't make somebody who's comfortable in the swill get up and climb to a higher plane and try to eat something better. If they're comfortable with the swill and there's a big supply of swill, they're going to stay with that swill. Right, and 
for some of them, no matter how much logic and reason and scriptural evidence you apply, it does literally nothing. They stare at you as if you are a brick wall. Well, well I could start with Genesis and, and explain the whole Bible historically all the way to the end. And I've done it to Judeo-Christians that stood there and listened to me and because they weren't racially conscious, because they didn't have a clue, because they thought Jews were God's chosen people and they were wonderful, beautiful, um, constructive people, and, and they really had no clue, right? But because they believed those things, they would stare at me and, and even agree with a lot of what I said and not get a word of it and, and not believe a word of it when I was done. It's, I've seen it probably 200 times. No exaggeration. I believe it. Uh, would you say it might be worthwhile to try and go a little deeper or, depending on your perspective, a little higher on whatever shell they have, try and identify what is keeping them from seeing that? I mean, obviously, it is up to our father to flip that switch. He is the one that removes the scales from our eyes. But uh, do you think it's it's a worthwhile endeavor to maybe go a little more elementary? And if that doesn't work, continually become more and more basic? You know, I would say that if, if you wanted to make somebody search that wasn't searching, that would require making them uncomfortable with their present paradigm. So you would have to devise things to say that made them uncomfortable with certain things that they believe. Now, that can be done, but that too can also be difficult because these people believe in fairy tales. They believe in lies, and they want to believe the lies. And they want to cling to the lies and defend them, even when the lies can be easily demonstrated to be lies right from the Scripture. They would rather believe the lies that they get from their pastor. And if somebody's... Um, willing to believe a lie, even when what they believe can be shown to be wrong from Scripture, then they're not honest people. And if they're not honest people, you cannot explain the Scripture to them properly. Yahweh sent them a spirit of deception so that they would love and believe a lie because they had no love for the truth. Right. And ultimately, I think we spread the gospel so that we are not found guilty of their sins. If we come into contact with them, we need to be sharing that gospel in one way or another. And that way, if we have done so, we are not found guilty of the same sins. We have done our part, and then if our Father deems them ready, or if that is a part of his plan at all to hear the message, then they will hear it. 
Well, well, right, absolutely. And and I'm not saying to be defeatist. We can't be defeatist. We have to try. I always tried to say things which I had hoped would provoke somebody to think about race. And I still say that. I still do that. I'll say it. I embarrass my wife. I embarrass my, my family and my loved ones. I, I embarrass them in restaurants. I embarrass them in Walmart. I embarrass them in, in wherever we go because I see people around me that I don't know, and I pick out something, and I say something about it. And I say it loud enough for everybody to hear me, hoping to provoke a conversation. Hoping that must be pretty common in Panama City, then. Well, well, yeah, in in a lot of ways it is. But I want to provoke a conversation with people. I want them to think about what I said. Why did he call that Mexican a squat monster? Why did he call that woman a mud shark? And, and they turned and looked at him. Why did he do that? Well, why, I, I want to, even if it's little things like that, I want to provoke people. I want to say that fornicators are evil, that, that sodomites are evil, that God hates fags, that things like that, to try to make people that, even people I don't know, think about something. Make them think. If you see, um, if you're talking to a third party and, and, a, and a mixed race couple walks by, say, oh, wow, that's terrible. Say something to make them think or to make them ask, why do you think that's terrible? And then you tell them why. It, it's um, that there's things that you could say to provoke your loved ones. You might push them to the edge. They might hate you. But my family, after they heard me preach on the Bible a few times, that they'd, that they'd um, ask me, Bill, what are you doing with yourself? Oh, um, being a racist. Bill, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a professional racist. Oh, being a racist. That's what I do. do say something provocative to make them think, to get them off their paradigm and be nice to them and kind, because racists love God and love his creation. So we should, be, we should be nice and kind to them. We shouldn't be mean and bitter. So we could be nice, kind racists and Nazis and treat them well, offer them help. Your loved ones. I'm talking about your fellow white kinsmen of course. And, and neighbors. Offer them help. Hey, I'll help you change that tire. I'll help you clean your gutter. You see an old lady, you ask her if she needs somebody, something from Walmart. I'm going to Walmart. You need something? Be nice to them. I have, um, there's an older couple next door to us, and I try to talk to them. I just brought them a dozen eggs from our chickens and, and trying to build a rapport, a relationship with them. And they see the Confederate flags flying outside our house, and they still talk to us, so maybe they'll be receptive. I hope so. That would certainly be a nice element to your living situation there. A little lonely here in Florida. I imagine that's that way for most identity Christians everywhere, but 
Oh, certainly keep that in mind, rocking the boat, but not letting the people that are in the boat drown. Well, well right, absolutely. And, and never be defeatist or have a defeatist attitude. Look for things that, that evoke um, conversations from people that get them to ask questions. Why do you feel that way? Do you really think God hates facts? Yeah, of course I do. It says it right in the Bible. Do you want to see it? Do you want to know where it says that? If, if, if they hear that, maybe it'll start to make them wonder about their Judeo-Christian pastors that say, oh, love the sinner but hate the sin. You can't approve of that sin. Right, especially when you have these people that are not well-versed in scripture saying, well, we need to obey the government or love the sinner, hate the sin, all that nonsense. And then they want to bring the date and they'll say, but this is 2015. What are you on about? And you just tell them the law has no expiration date. Well, well, right. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Uh, and I know it's a, a whole other level of abstraction, what, what I had um, explained in the Galatians presentations, that the commandments are much more than just those ten basic Ten Commandments, right? That they hang up on courthouses and stuff. Absolutely. And and the Jews jump up and down and scream. If um, and that's another way to approach it is why why do the the Jews hate God? And there's a million ways to approach um, trying to provoke somebody to some sort of awakening or some sort of um, discomfort level with his worldly paradigm. But there's no pill. We're not going to have a pill. We have to run the race, right? That's our challenge. I want to I be successful with what I do. I want to convert 10,000 people to Christian identity. Am I going to be able to do that? It's not me. It's God doing it. So I don't have any control over how successful I'm going to be. So I have to accept that up front, that I could be a total failure and maybe convert one person or two or, or none. That's the way it is. That's the humble way that we should all approach that. Right. So we don't look for numbers. We don't look for success. We look to carry our message as far as we can and to keep it scholarly and biblical, which is um, lacking in Christian identity. Oh, I pray that we can improve upon that and hopefully the next generation or two will be far more informed and provided there is a next generation or two but i do hope that we can reach the ones that we are intended to reach and just keep the law as it should be kept 
Well, well, that's all we could hope for. That, that's um, what what can I say? It, it's that there's going to be an awakening among our people. We're promised that. There's no doubt. People are going to have to understand the call to come out of Babylon when it happens. People are going to have to understand the call to arise and thresh, as it says in Micah chapter 4, when it happens. How are they going to understand that call? I believe that the only way is the Christian identity message. Because the only valid Christian ministry before the advent of Christ, as Christ himself said, is the Elijah ministry of Malachi chapter 4, where it says that he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. That's the racial covenant message of Scripture. that only Christian identity has. Nobody else is doing that. They can't. You can't do that unless you're an identity Christian. Are you still with me? I am still with you. Okay, Lorraine. Well, it's my hope that we can encourage other people in Christian identity to pursue that effort, uh, even if they are uncomfortable with it. We need to not only rock the boat of our lost kinsmen, but we need to rock our own boats to some extent as well if we are not fully advocating for Christ as we should well, well, right, and and that's a disappointment in in Christian identity. I see is that many identity Christians are self righteous because that they feel special that they have the truth of Scripture and history, and Christian identity is the truth of Scripture and history, but it should make us humble. It should not cause us to want and exalt ourselves over our um, lesser blessed brethren. If you have this message, you have this message as a gift from God. And to whom much is given, much will be expected. So you should be humble and seek to lift your brethren up. And to do that, your brethren have to have their hands up, right? The ones that don't want to be lifted out of the mire, you can just walk past them. You can't help them unless they are looking for it. The ones that 
are looking for it, those you find and identify, and don't exalt yourself over the others. You have this awakening as a gift from God, not so that you could vaunt yourself or justify yourself over your brethren. You have it because it's a responsibility and a trial for you to do it to help build God's kingdom. That's why you have it. That's why you've been called to this awakening, not to be a Pharisee. Absolutely. Too many of our people want to be um, self-righteous and despise whites who are not called to awakening, who are not blessed with this knowledge. And they shouldn't, because we should all understand that we were all in that place at one time. We were all there. And we're no longer in that place. Not because of anything that we did ourselves, but because of the grace of God. So that's probably about all I can say in that area. It needed to be said, though. It should be said more often. I agree. Everyone needs that reminder, and humility is lacking. I lack it. Other people lack it, and... If we would do a little bit of introspection, I think we might find ourselves becoming humble simply by ourselves. Well, well some of us, um, and sometimes, and we all do it, and, and I've done it, what we lay aside our humility out of, um, out of anger, out of exasperation with our own people. Yeah, you know, we wonder, how do you not see this? Right. How could you be so blind? But we ourselves at one time didn't see it, and we were blind. So that's just life, and, and we have to understand that and, and remember it, and that'll help us be humble. Right, accepting that they may be at a position that we're at two years prior to our own awakenings uh, or 10 years prior to that. We, we need to justify that or somehow put that into juxtaposition with their, their current actions and be a little bit more forgiving. Right. So we, we, we have to... Um Exalting yourself over your brethren, yet you, yet you alienate your brethren, yet you'll never reach them. It, it's, I agree. Um, you, you can't, you, okay, you have to draw a line at God's law. You don't go to your sister's house for dinner if she's married to a nigger. You don't do it because you don't sit at the table with niggers. So you have to draw a line at God's law. But 
if you could go speak to your sister and there aren't aliens around the table, then you, you should take the time that you can spend with her in order to bring her the message, bring her the truth. And perhaps maybe you'll prevent her from having a nigger at her table one day. We can hope for the Ezra 10 situation to play out again, and if that winds up being what brings them out of their sin, then we won them over, and that's what we were supposed to do. And if that doesn't occur, then that's not what was supposed to happen. Right. We have to accept our failure, and we have to know that it's going to be lots of failure. That there's going to be, you know, ten virgins, five of them were off in the markets, frolicking around, um, didn't have their oil. Well, thank you very much for taking my call. Uh, it went a little longer than I had anticipated. I didn't realize I'd spent so much time on the call. I hope there's oh, still fine. time for anyone else to call if someone wanted to join in on this. That's fine. I, I told the people in the Christagania chat how they could um, how they could call in. I'm not going to take any anonymous calls. Right. I'll take um, calls to to the Skype number that I published in the Christagania chat or I will take calls on TalkShoe from people that I know. I'm not going to give the trolls an opportunity. Screw the trolls. There's five or six. There's at least one or two of them in the talk to chat three or four times each. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to um, give the trolls an opportunity. Thank you for joining me, Seth, and, and Yahweh bless. You're welcome. Praise Christ. Somebody in the Christiania chat, somebody in the talk to chat, I'm sorry, somebody in the talk to chat had um had asked how you deal with a, a person who exalts America's victory in World War II. And, and that's another, that, that's another. To me, I understood when I put up my, um, my, my Mind Comp Project website in 2010, I was surprised. I was kind of shocked how many people who claim to be identity Christians were really um, British Israel. And British Israel people, they're the worst in, in Christian identity for extolling the great victory over the evil Nazis in the Second World War. And that's because British Israel was really a poor excuse of a religion based on British imperialism which fell into a shambles and became a laughingstock when Britain lost the empire. And, and British Israel is disconnected from, from, from truth and from scripture. It, it was a religion that legitimized, the, it was a false Christian identity that legitimizes the British Empire and, and, and the dominion over the non-white races, which the Bible does not tell us to have. 
the non-white races should be in fear of us. We should not be teaching them or civilizing them in any way. So it's that um, variety of Christian identity that actually extols the Allied victory in World War II. And, and that's sad. The... Um, The way I, I, I might approach it is simply to ask them why they think it's a wonderful thing that white nations destroy each other and, and fight against each other because of the Antichrist, the, the people that deny that Jesus is the Christ. That, that's, it, it's another um, problem that would be that would require a different approach for each individual and based upon what they know or what they profess and, and again there's no one answer that that will that will help everybody or, or that will um, provoke all of the people that feel that way into any type of investigation or, or awakening. Uh, so that's a hard question, Dirk Ryder, but I appreciate it. Um, maybe one day we'll come up with a, a short list of why white Christians should not be proud of the American and, and allied victory in World War II, because we certainly shouldn't be proud of it. We should be shamed that we went to war against our German brothers. That's what we should be. We should be ashamed that we destroyed Christian Europe. We should be ashamed. You know, England went to war, won the war, and lost the empire. How do they explain that? 55 million Christians were killed in World War II. For what? How do they explain that? There's a there's a hundred other ways to approach it. So it, it's probably a topic all by itself. But thank you. I want to say a few short things, and and I'll take another call from the people in the um, Christiania chat or, or on Talkshoe if we get a legitimate call. I want to say a few things first about modesty, and then about pornography, and these are also in response to posts at the Christiania Forum. In a thread on modesty, a discussion of beach attire had occurred. I even posted a picture, of some pictures of cousins from the 1930s, cousins of mine, and, and just to show what their beach attire was like back then. Even we do not realize how Christianity has affected European society in positive ways and sustained it for so many centuries. And there's one example I want to make. In this discussion on modesty at the Christiania Forum, someone had brought up the fact that some Jew introduced the bikini into our culture rather recently. Now, that is partially true. In reality, bikini like the, the bikini in the modern period did become popular maybe 70, 80 years ago and, and was pushed by the Jews 
as um, suitable beachwear for liberated women. In reality, bikini-like clothing was being worn by women who were sporting in Rome as early as the 3rd century AD. They were wearing clothing that was exactly like the modern bikini. They weren't thongs, but they were pretty skimpy. And there's absolute archaeological evidence of that. And it was probably worn even sooner than the 3rd century. In ancient Sparta, and there's literary evidence of this, in ancient Sparta, the women were famous for wearing see-through dresses, which were evidently even worn by married women. But all of these things, the Spartan see-through dresses, the Roman bikinis, disappeared with the advent of a Christian society. We don't see these things in archaeology in the Middle Ages. We don't see these things in drawings and paintings of the Middle Ages. Yes, in, in the 1800s, we had Rubin and, and certain profane artists, but everyday people did not wear bikinis or, or, or thongs or, or any immodest clothing like that in the Middle Ages. And after the emancipation of, of the Jews and the liberation of women and, and the, the decline of our society and the eradication of Christianity from society that we suffered in this last century, now women can run around naked once again. We took Christ out of society, and the women took their clothes off, and they're running around naked. They're running around the beaches. We, we see it all the time. Uh, um, it, it's incredible how naked women can just run around and, and walk through packs of roving niggers and are totally oblivious to any possible danger or, or the fact that they're absolutely immoral. So Christianity did that. Christianity took the bikini out of society, and now about 100 years ago or 80 years ago or 70 years ago, the Jews put it back in because we've taken Christ out of society once again. About a week ago, a forum member made a post being evidently being disgusted with something that he had seen, and he attested that pornography should be illegal. Well, pornography generally was illegal throughout Christendom until around the same time that the Jews brought us the bikini, and now we have pornography once again. They also had pornography in ancient Rome, they just didn't have all of the technical means to spread it like we have. Now, when Adolf Hitler, pornography was um, what was an everyday, an everyday thing in, in Weimar Germany, 
Adolf Hitler took it out of Germany. He eliminated pornography from Germany, virtually, and the Jews hated him for it. So America and Britain were called by the Jews to make Germany free once again. And now liberated Germans are once again engrossed in sodomy and pornography and every Jewish perversion, all in the name of liberty. Another forum member had um, made a response to that post. And I'm not saying he's a bad guy or anything. It, 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 um, it was a fair shot. And he said that, indeed, the psychological damage pornography does is incredible, and I would agree. It is an inconspicuous cancer in the minds of the viewers, and I would agree. It wreaks havoc on your hormones and desensitizes the brain, and I would certainly agree. And he says that it causes healthy sexual relationships in marriage to fall apart, and it certainly does and others to pursue ever more perverted material. And yes, pornography is a slippery slope down the path to hell. There's no doubt. And all of this is true. But then he said, interestingly, it's something which isn't spoken about much within CI circles. I'm sure there are even many among identity Christians who struggle with it silently. And, and I would pray that he is wrong about that. He probably is right. There probably are at least some if we want to um, estimate sampled data. But I pray that he's wrong, and I pray that there are not many identity Christians who would engage with pornography and, and such smut and perversion. And with that, I want to speak about the unspeakable. And it's something else that, that I would take for granted, and that is that some things should be despicable to every identity Christian. And we should all be on the same page regarding those things. We should not ever... Um, and engage ourselves with pornography, with pedophilia, but with anything that's so evil and so destructive of our Christian brethren and ours and their posterity. And, and, and we should never accept any form of sexual corruption. So it is with pornography. We take it for granted that identity Christians, once they come to Christian identity, they've already put away all of the sins of the world, the pornography and, and, and adultery and, and other forms of fornication or sodomy. So generally, I don't say much about pornography. I don't say much about pedophilia because I picture myself to be addressing people, I picture my listeners to feel about those things the same way I do, that they are repulsed by pornography and all forms of smut and perversion. 
I take it for granted that my listeners are already repulsed by all, all of those things. And that's why I really don't talk about pornography much. Now, if I heard a Christian identity pastor talk about pornography all the time, I would think that perhaps he has a problem with it. But to me, it's unspeakable, and and it's something that I shouldn't have to talk about. Because identity Christians should have already put away all those things. I have a question. Um, It's my understanding that scholars think Mary was 15. She could have been 15. There's not a problem with that. She could have been 16 would have been more typical in the Greco-Roman world. 16, even though Greeks may have been betrothed at an earlier um, betrothed women who were younger, 16 would be the typical age for consummating a marriage. 15, 16, it, it's a hair split, right? It, it's... um. In truth, there's no way in Scripture to know how old Mary was when she birthed the Christ. There's no way. There's no age evidence for her whatsoever. I want to talk about a couple of things that uh, I'm sometimes criticized for, and that's because um, many people have differing opinions on who is white. And I did a whole program on who is white with Sven Longshanks um, a couple of months ago on Christianity Europe. And this also came up within the last few days on the Christianity Forum. And let me say this first. Most Russians are not white. And when I say that, I'm considering people who identify themselves as Russian. And that means practically all of the people in the Russian Federation, people who are Russian as far as Russia is a geographical entity. And that's what Vladimir Putin himself esteems Russia to be, just like America does not describe a particular race. It's only used today. It it only effectively describes a government and a geographical entity. And we could easily, just as easily say, most Americans are not white. And we may not be entirely accurate, but it's not that far off. Most Russians are not white, considering Russia as the geographical entity. And Vladimir Putin is not a promoter of Russia in an ethnic sense at all. He believes in Russia, the geographic entity. Russia the world power, and his policies are anti-nationalist, and they are anti-racial. 
historically, ethnic Russians colonized their own empire. Russia is really only that part of, of, of the um, former Soviet Union that we know, what, which is up by Finland and by Low Russia and, and the European part of Russia. The rest of it is really um, a Russian empire, and it's not properly Russia at all. And the people, the inhabitants, are only ethnically Russian if they moved from Russia proper and Moscow, really, and, and um, into those other areas which Moscow had eventually conquered. So Russia is an empire. Russia, the geographical entity, is an empire which includes people of many different races. Historically, ethnic Russians colonized their own empire, settling among Tatars and Mongols and Arabs and other people of Asian and mixed races. As for the ethnic Russians of today, the ethnic Russians of today, not the ethnic Russians of two, three, four, five, six hundred years ago, the ethnic Russians of today, as for them, I believe that many of them have indeed mixed, but especially with Tatars and Jews, to the greater extent, within the last 100 years. I have seen and even met a few Russians that I thought were white. However, the ones that I met that I thought were white were the minority. I'm speaking of Russians within my own experience and not of Russians in Russia. And when the total population of the Russian Federation is concerned, Russians who are white are a much more minute minority. There are many supposed Russians in Panama City Beach, in Miramar, in Destin, and most of the Russians that we see and meet, we do not think are white. We do not accept are white. They all have features that we would consider to be alien. Is um, Maria Sharapova white? She's the ideal. I believe she's white. She's probably white. I have no problem accepting her as white. Is Elena Korokova white? I could name a hundred other Russian athletes and, and prominent Russians that are certainly white. Or at least it's almost certain that they're white. Is Anna Kornikova white? I don't think so. Now we're getting to a point where we can argue. Anna Kornikova, she's not white. No one would convince me that Leonid Brezhnev was white. Leonid Brezhnev He's identified as a Russian. He's an ethnic Russian. He isn't white. He's not even close. How about Konstantin Chernenko? Chernenko, was, was he white? He's identified as a Russian ethnically. He is from eastern Ukraine, where many Russians were settled. They're not Ukrainian. He's an ethnic Russian from eastern Ukraine. 
He's not white. Joseph Stalin, he's identified as Russian. He's from the Armenia, the Caucasus Mountains, Georgia. I think Georgia. He's not white. I don't accept him as being white. I think he has Jewish blood. That's debated out there in, 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 in the world and on the Internet. I don't care. I'm not going to debate whether Stalin's a Jew or not. He, he definitely was a devil. There's no doubt. Chernenko, Brezhnev, ethnic Russians, they're not white. They're identified as Russians. As for Putin, if, if Vladimir Putin is not a Jew, he certainly is a whore for the Jews. But I've seen credible evidence that he has one Jewish grandfather. I understand that other people don't think that evidence is credible, but I think it is. Many Russians have accused him of being a Jew, and I have records on that. Yeltsin, Boris Yeltsin, gave Russia to the Jews. And I can tell that story. Putin was Boris Yeltsin's hand-picked successor. Yeltsin was in the Jews' pockets. Putin was his hand-picked successor. And Putin is pictured many times wearing the yarmulke in photo ops. And I don't think they're all photoshopped. As for the Jews, Putin supports the Jews 200%. And he always has. He professes openly support for Israel. He enforces the Holocaust dogma in Russia. He enforces anti-Nazi dogma in Russia. He has outlawed anti-Semitism. He has outlawed ethnic nationalism and racism in Russia. He enforces multiculturalism. He enforces diversity. He's flooding or allowing Moscow to be flooded with ethnic aliens from Asia. Once again, it's not the first time. He is an enemy of true Russian nationalists. And I understand that there are some Russian nationalists, and I've seen a lot of them, and I accept them as white. I believe that they are white. I believe that they are true Rus or true Slavs. Putin is no anti-oligarch. He's no friend of Russia. He's only another internationalist trying to prop up Russia as a world power to compete with America and his gang of Jews to compete with our gang of Jews. That's all he's doing. And certain Jewish businessmen have really cashed in during Putin's tenure. And while we're on the subject of who is white, I want to talk about Welsh brunettes because I'm criticized for thinking that Catherine Zeta-Jones is actually Welsh. And I can't understand that criticism because there's no evidence whatsoever that her Welsh father or her Welsh-Irish mother were Jews or were not white. And I know that Catherine Zeta-Jones does look rather hideous in recent pictures. And she has some features which are questionable by Nordicist-leaning whites in some of her older pictures. But like the typical Hollywood chicksa, and that's what she is, she married a Jew, she has had 
several plastic surgeries on her eyes, on her cheekbones, on her nose. She has had repeated Botox treatments on her already full lips. So her face is not her real face. The features that we see on Catherine Zeta-Jones now, and she looks pretty bad, they're not her real features. So some people have criticized me for using her as an example of a Welsh brunette, trying to look for examples of brunettes that everybody would understand. And I don't really know much about Hollywood, about famous figures, stars, if you want to call them celebrities. I don't have a whole list in my head that I can draw from. I poked around and I found a few other examples. I'm not even going to name them because it's immaterial. We have um, nordicists in Christian identity that think that all white people should have paper white skin, yellow hair, and blue eyes. And that's not the congruent, that, that's not the um, average look of a white person throughout the history of our race. It's an ideal. It's a Nordic ideal, a Germanic ideal, and that's to be recognized. And we should all seek to uphold the ideal. But there are plenty of white people that are brunettes that have maybe a shade more melatonin. They look a little tan. That doesn't make them niggers. It doesn't make them Arabs. That word brunette was in our German language long before Germans had any contact with niggers and Arabs. White people can have brown eyes and brown hair and be brunettes. The um, eyes on Catherine Zeta-Jones, the way her eyes look in her younger pictures, perhaps before she had all the plastic surgery, those eyes, I've seen those same eyes on countless Scandinavians and Icelandic people. Countless. And I don't think that they all have. Mongol blood in them. I don't think that they're all half Chinese. Not at all. So, if I'm, it, and, and there are a few people I've seen criticize me for my assessment of Catherine Zeta Jones. I'm only seeking to find a, um, a, a model brunette whose name I could say so that everybody knows what I'm talking about as an example of what a brunette looks like. Because they're white brunettes, and they're white. They're not niggers. They're not spicks. So those who criticize me for trying to um, point at somebody as an example of what a brunette could look like is stuck on stupid. That, that's all I could say. That there are plenty of brunettes that are certainly white. And there are plenty of um, white Hollywood starlets that marry Jews.
That's, there is no shortage of that. The De Medici banking family, Jewish or not, there's two reasons why I think that they're Jews. First, the, the way they um, bought their way into a nobility, basically that's what they did. They were bankers who bought their way into a nobility. That, that's a Jewish, um, that, that's a very Jewish method of, of becoming noble. They also have a name which indicates that they were physicians in the Middle Ages, De Medici. That's what their name means. And I could be wrong about that, but that to me indicates that they were into pharmacia or sorcery. Now, pharmacia was forbidden to Christians. It's very explicit right in the New Testament. And usury and the practice of loaning money usury was forbidden to Christians in the Middle Ages. So for those reasons, I don't think that the De Medici's were Christians. Aside from all of the portraits I've seen of De Medici's, especially the early De Medici's, who were pretty damned hideous looking. So to me, that's like three strikes. I don't think the De Medici's were Christians. Now, would it, would it, um, I think that they had Jewish blood. I do. Would it upset me if they didn't? No, it wouldn't upset me. I wouldn't care. I would kind of be relieved. I would be relieved because most of the European nobility now descends from De Medici's. A great number of European nobles descend from De Medici's. France, England, and Germany, and elsewhere. So, many European nobles, way back in the 1500s, were heavily intermarried with the De Medici's, with several branches of the De Medici's, not just with one. So, I would be relieved to find that the um, De Medici's were not Jews, because some of those kings, as Sven Longshanks and I discussed recently, some of those kings seem to be pretty good guys and pretty worthy kings. And I would be relieved that they weren't Jews. So it wouldn't um, upset me if the De Medici's were not Jews. But for the reasons I gave, I kind of think that they were. And that's my opinion. I can't prove it but I can give an opinion based on um, an assortment of criteria, and that's what I just did. And I just did it because we can't know everything in history. We just don't have the records, and that's the way it is. But let's look at the fruits of the Demodiges, and, and I'm only going to name a few things. I didn't have a whole lot of time to prepare for this. Where... Um, we're on the road. Let's look at the fruits of the De Medici's. Pope Leo X. What happened under Pope Leo X? I've covered this. I discussed this in Christreich. I discussed this in a program I did um, maybe five or six years ago called Usury or, or um, Jews in the Middle Ages, I think, or something like that. 
Pope Leo X was presiding, and he was Giovanni de Medici. He presided over the uh, Fifth Lateran Council. Fifth Lateran Council is what finally drove Martin Luther to nail his 95 theses to the wall, to the door at the, at the Wittenberg Church, as the story is usually told. And the Fifth Lateran Council made an attempt to basically ban printing in the Bible because it made it unlawful in Roman Catholic lands, which was virtually the whole white world, to print a Bible without the permission of the local bishop. That's one. So that alone would, would basically, to print a book without permission of the local bishop. And since the Bible was already banned by an earlier pope, I think Julius, but it may have been beforehand, the, um, that would make it impossible to print Bibles. It would make it impossible. Now, another thing the Fifth Lateran Council did was make pawn shops, the Monte di Pieta, make those pawn shops which loaned money on usury, not only make them lawful, but force all of the Christian bishops to accept them in their diocese. And many Christian bishops at the time were against usury. So what the De Medici Pope was doing was he was forcing usury on every Christian bishop, forcing them to accept usury, which is absolutely contrary to the word of God and absolutely beneficial to the Jew. So that's part of the fruits of Pope Leo X, the Dimitri Pope. Look at... um. Catherine de Medici. There's another one. She basically had the Huguenots, the Protestants of France, slaughtered en masse. She almost wiped them out. She killed, she had thousands of people killed simply because they disagreed with the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. There's, and, and, and there's another de Medici. There's a lot of um, de Medici's that did some pretty horrible things. Their fruits, if we know them by their fruits, wow. I would, I would say that they are almost certainly Jews. Yes, I would. We don't have another call yet, and I may not get another call because um, it, it seems that usually only the trolls want to call into my programs. I don't get it. That's the way it is. That's okay. Was Calvin a Jew? You, you know, I don't know if um, John Calvin was a Jew, and... If I ever call him a Jew, I'm not going to read, I don't really regret it, because like Putin, he may as well have been a Jew. And I'm going to um, try.
try to explain why. I, I recently quoted Leonard Young speaking about some unrelated topic uh, on a program with Sven Longshanks. <coughs> Excuse me. I quoted Leonard Young and um, here's what he said about Calvin. It has been stated above that the Reformation was really the result in England of the age-long resistance of the British church to Roman domination. But this does not mean that Britain was not influenced in any way by the continental movements of Luther and Calvin. Calvin went to Geneva from France, where his name was spelled Cowan, C-A-U-I-N. Possibly a French effort to spell Cohen, the Jewish name. The Jews claimed that he was of Jewish extraction. An unfortunate result of his efforts, as far as Britain was concerned, was that he organized great numbers of revolutionary orators who were spread about Western Europe with a good sprinkling in England and Scotland. These men laid the groundwork for revolution, excuse me, under a cloak of religious fervor. Now, neither can Calvin nor the Jews rightly take any credit for the Reformation in England which began on account of Henry, Henry VIII's incontinency, where there were, at a time when there were few to no Jews in England, Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife so that he could have another wife, and, and the Pope wouldn't do it. That's what it took to set the Reformation off in England. Henry VIII was not prodded by Jews. Likewise, and, and more noble men, Wycliffe and, and Jan Hus and Martin Luther and many other of the reformers existed apart from Jews and apart from Calvin. Calvin was basically pretty much a latecomer to the Reformation. And while... It is true, as I have demonstrated, that Martin Luther certainly had been helped along by the Jews. Further divisions within the Roman Church along the lines of the schism of the Eastern Orthodox Church were inevitable. It was bound to happen, especially after the success of the Hussites. And the Hussites, who basically freed Bohemia from, from Roman Catholic Church control a hundred years before Martin Luther, the Hussites, I don't think, can be accused of having had Jewish influences. I've, I've never heard it, and I don't think it's ever been countenanced. So I, I would never say it, and I would... Um, Without evidence, I would dismiss any notion of it. The Jews were rather taking advantage of already existing divisions for their own gain as 
they are so adept at doing. But the Jews were not the authors and should not get any credit for the Reformation. Christogenia former forum member Michael Allen gave a good analogy of uh, the debate concerning in the debate concerning Calvin by comparing him to Luther, and, and it was quite appropriate. Britain and France would have been much better off following Martin Luther, and especially the post-1543 version of Martin Luther. That's when he published On the Jews and Their Lives. Instead, they were influenced by Calvin, and Calvin argued in favor of permitting usury, while Luther detested usury and understood it to be evil. Most of the German reformers detested usury and rejected it as being contrary to the will of God. But Calvinism, while the English Reformation was not based on Calvinism, Calvinism was influential among many of the Puritans, and the Puritans had in turn influenced the Church of England. But the Church of England was not founded on Calvinism. Puritans such as um, Oliver Cromwell and Cotton Mather were both friendly to Jews, and both of them advocated and allowed usury. The allowance of usury, which Calvin promoted out of all the reformers, allowed the Jew to thrive among us and set the course for modern history more significantly than any other event in the Reformation or any other result of the Reformation. Let me put it that way. While Calvin and his defenders claim the inspiration of Paul. Calvin's predestination is not the predestination which was taught by Paul. They are lying. And Calvin is often compared to his adversary Arminius. And the basis of his predestination is contrasted to that of Arminius. And there is a false dichotomy. Arminius described God's foreknowledge as being the basis of predestination, meaning the foreknowledge which God has in relation to the behavior, the sinfulness of men. Calvin rejected this and based his idea of predestination on the good pleasure of God, apart from the sinfulness of men, even though Calvin did reject sin. And that's a false dichotomy. Both men are wrong. Paul said that whom God foreknew, not what he foreknew, whom he foreknew, those he predestinated. Arminius says what God foreknew. 
determine whether or not men were predestinated. That's not what Paul taught. Paul taught that whom God foreknew, those he predestinated. Paul did not say that it is what God foreknew about them. Paul said that it was whom God foreknew. There's a huge difference there. To find out whom God foreknew, we must go to the prophets of the Old Testament. As Paul had also said, that it was for them who are called according to his purpose. Going back to the Old Testament, we find that God only foreknew the children of Israel. I'm going to read from a paper online, John Calvin's Doctrine of Election. I'm only going to read part two, the definition of Calvin's predestination. And this is by Bryn McPhail, M-A-C-P-H-A-I-L. And he does fail. He is the son of failure. He says, under his heading, the definition of Calvin's predestination, since we cannot deny the necessity of confabulating with the doctrine of election, the fundamental task remaining is the coherent and voracious articulation of this doctrine. Calvin defines predestination as God's eternal decree by which he compacted with himself what he willed to become of each man. For all are not created in equal condition. Rather, eternal life is foreordained or preordained for some, eternal damnation for others. And we would agree with that, but the Old Testament tells us the answers. We can't redefine those things as God had expressed his will in the Old Testament. McPhail goes on to say, this definition requires some qualification because many of Calvin's opponents, including Arminius, would not have a problem with this definition. Arminius did not deny predestination. In fact, he believed in it. And he quotes, I do not present as a matter of doubt the fact that God has elected some to salvation and not elected or passed by others. The difference is he did not base it on a divine arbitrary decree like Calvin did, but upon God's foreknowledge of man's merit. Neither man, I would say, neither man understood that salvation is actually in accordance with God's law and that there are men planted by God according to his law. We would call them wheat. And there are men, or so-called men, planted by the devil contrary to God's law. Bastards. And we would call them tares, as described in the parable of the wheat and the tares. But both Calvin and Arminius are oblivious to the issue of race, so far as I could tell from this paper. McPhail goes on to say that Calvin seemed to foresee 
that there would be people that would argue that God distinguishes among men according as he foresees what the merits of each will be. Calvin accordingly writes against this notion, quote, by thus covering election with a veil of foreknowledge, they not only obscure it, but feign that it has its origin elsewhere. So we see Calvin, too, basically denies that God foreknew those whom he predestinated. And McPhail goes on to say, Calvin contests that this view of foreknowledge makes man God's co-worker in salvation. Well, Arminius's view of foreknowledge does, because it's salvation by works. And man can do nothing to achieve his own salvation. But Paul's view of foreknowledge is different. Paul's telling us that it was those whom God foreknew, not what God foreknew, those whom God foreknew, that were those whom he predestinated. That's what Paul's telling us. Calvin is arguing against Arminius, but he's not following Paul. Calvin contests that this view of foreknowledge, meaning Arminius's view, makes man God's co-worker in salvation and implies that election is ratified only by man's consent. And Calvin's right in assessing Arminius's argument, but he's still not following Paul. This is to make the gravest of errors because it suggests that man's will is superior to God's will, or at the very least, implies God's plan is partially dependent on man. In refutation of this view, Calvin asserts that this plan was founded upon his freely given mercy without regard to human worth, and we would agree with that. But it is with regard to race, and Calvin didn't understand that. Paul said it was whom God foreknew that were those whom he predestinated, and that he would have mercy upon those whom he foreknew if they did do evil. To them who are the called according to his purpose. Therefore, foreknowledge and predestination cannot be separated. The Old Testament reveals whom God foreknew, and the New Testament assures the completion of their predestination. McPhail continues, Calvin wisely, and and we don't think it's wise, we think he's cherry-picking. Calvin wisely proceeds to draw exhaustively from Scripture to buttress his argument, citing that God chose us before the foundations of the world were laid, according to the good pleasure of his will, in order that we should be holy and spotless and irreproachable in his sight. Calvin observes that Paul sets God's good pleasure over against the merit, any merit of ours, 
declaring all virtue in man to be the result of his election. Calvin continues, we would declare, identity Christians should declare, that all virtue in man is the result of his being from a good tree, because a bad tree can't produce good fruit, and a good fruit, a good tree can't produce bad fruit. So God elected the good trees. That's true. And they are attributed by God with virtue. That's true. So Calvin's partly right, but he doesn't understand the trees. He doesn't recognize God's election. He imagines that anybody could elect themselves by choosing Jesus, basically, that you should be a Christian, that you should acknowledge God. But we'll continue with McPhail. Calvin continues by arguing that if God chose us to be holy, it naturally follows that he would not have chosen us because he foresaw that we would be so. The fact that God chose the elect to be holy also refutes the accusation and misrepresentation that predestination overthrows all exhortations to godly living. Calvin reminds his opponents that election has as its goal holiness of life, And a lot of this is true, but it only applies to the children of Israel, those whom God foreknew. Calvin reminds his opponents that election has as its goal holiness of life. Therefore, it ought to arouse us to eagerly set our mind upon it than to serve as a pretext for doing nothing. Calvin remarks that Paul afterward confirms what he had earlier said about the origin of our election when he states, according to the purpose of his will, which he had purposed in himself. This is to say that God considered nothing outside himself with which to be concerned in making his decree. Well, God did consider Abraham and the promises to Abraham. Calvin is mostly right. But the wrong part is this. The predestination and foreknowledge only pertain to the Old Testament children of Israel. As Paul had spoken in Ephesians chapter 1, and that's where Calvin is quoting. That's where Calvin is getting this doctrine from. Paul spoke in Ephesians chapter 1 of redemption, preordination, which is the same thing as predestination, transgression, and remittance of sins, those things which only pertain to the children of Israel of the Old Testament, since where there is no law, according to Paul, sin is not imputed. So if there is no law, there is no transgression, and there is no need for forgiveness. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that his readers were among the nations in the flesh. Meaning, when Paul told those Ephesians that they were the nations in the flesh, that meant that they were indeed one of those nations promised to Abraham, which would come from his offspring, as Paul described at length in Romans chapter 4. 
the nations are according to the flesh, just like Israel is according to the flesh. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, for that same reason, Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 2 that they had been alienated. The King James Version translates a verb into a noun, a past tense verb into a noun in that chapter. Calvin should have been able to read the Greek, I'm sure. They had been alienated, but were now being reconciled. They were Israelites according to the flesh, from the ancient dispersions of Israel, where Paul was only talking out of both sides of his mouth. They had to be Israelites. Like all other Judeo-Christian commentators, Calvin ignores the meaning of all of these other statements for Paul and cherry-picks the scripture in order to fit it into his own universalist understanding. Calvin is not good for Christian identity. To continue with MacPhail, to more meticulously deal with the objection by some that God would be contrary to himself, if he should universally invite all men to him, but choose only a few as elect. Calvin draws heavily from the ninth chapter in Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul writes that before Jacob and Esau were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, the elder will serve the younger. Calvin therefore argues that rejection does not occur on the basis of works. He argues that Paul specifically emphasizes that point by showing that before Jacob and Esau had done anything good or evil, one was chosen, the other rejected. This is in order to prove that the foundation of divine predestination is not in works. Calvin also reminds us that the Apostle Paul writes that God has mercy upon whomever he wills, and he hardens the hearts of whomever he wills. Has not the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for beauty and another for dishonor? God is free to determine a purpose for election, but that purpose has nothing to do with man's desire or effort. Nothing is more clear in Romans 9. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And what Calvin should have done was Calvin should have looked at everything Paul had said about Esau. Because in the epistle to the Hebrews, Paul said that Esau was a fornicator and a profane man and sought no room for repentance. So Esau did do something that displeased God. Esau was a race mixer. That's why Esau forfeited his birthright. God foresaw that Esau would forfeit his birthright for those reasons. And Calvin totally ignores all of that. And God had already chosen the children of Israel Whereas the descendants of Esau 
are rejected, for which Paul calls them vessels of wrath fitted to destruction in that same chapter. Using the plural, Calvin ignores that. All of Esau's progeny are also rejected, Paul calling them vessels, plural, vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. In that chapter, and using the plural, he must be referring to all of Esau's posterity in general. McPhail continues, to comprehend that God chooses us, not because of what he finds in us, but according to his own good pleasure, gives rise to the charge that God is arbitrary. Arminius, when citing the difference between his predestination and that of Calvin, declares that he did not base predestination on a divine arbitrary decree. This is an erroneous evaluation of Calvin's doctrine because it suggests that God makes his selection in a whimsical or capricious manner. Calvin's argument is only that there is no reason found in us. But that is not to say that God has no reason in himself. This is precisely what Calvin is trying to communicate when he reasons that we are saved by God's eternal decree by which he compacted with himself what he is willed to become of each man. And all of this ignores the fact that the promises to God of God to Abraham would not fail and that they were carried down to his seed after him to which nobody else could be added. Calvin ignores half the scripture. Cherry picks a few scriptures and creates his own doctrine. This is the problem with Calvinism. It's no better than any other universalist interpretation of scripture, and it attempts to make void the promises to Abraham assured in turn to Jacob Israel, promises which can never be voided. I haven't read Calvin. But the fruits of Calvin on any dimension are wrong. The mainstream Calvinists believe in an anti-biblical type of predestination which transcends race and creates a Frankenchrist, a body of Christ stitched together out of the pieces of all races, no different from that of the modern Roman Catholics. On the other hand, most of the so-called kinists are Calvinists, and they think that there could be multiple bodies of Christ. So while claiming to be nationalists, they can still cling to Calvin in spite of Scripture. Calvin is not good for Christian identity. He is just another devil. Thank you for joining me, and good night. I will be here tomorrow night with the Round Earth Roundtable. It's going to be something a little different. We're going to take up a dispute against the clowns that believe in a flat earth, the clowns that believe in a hollow earth, and other heresies. Good night.